Uh, we're in the 15th message of the Heroes and Villains uh, series this morning. We're going to be talking about a villain in just a minute. But a reminder, we started this actually late last summer. Heroes are those in the mold of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate or the superhero, we said. And as a man on earth, what he demonstrated that was heroic was simple faithfulness to the Father. So heroes of faith in the Bible are simply those who display Christ-like faithfulness. Villains are those who display faithlessness towards God, sort of the negative cues we want to avoid. We said last week, too, that we're not telling sinners to be better people when we say to aspire nobly to Christ's kind, excuse me, kind of righteousness and faithfulness. Rather, we're simply saying, as those born again with the life of Christ within us, what we want to engender is more of Christ's life and less of us. A Christ in us is our hope of glory as well as our faithfulness. Now, we're making a big jump this morning. Uh, we went from Joseph last time to, uh, you like that? Uh, we went from Joseph last time, the end of the book of Genesis, and we've spent a number of lessons there. But this morning when we pick up, we're going to be in Exodus, and a lot of stuff has gone forward between our last lesson and this. So, in Joseph's day, you remember, uh, honored son, sold as a slave, risen up as a steward of a household, back down as a criminal, raised up to the stewardship of the nation of Egypt. And so to get through the years of famine that come along, Jacob and his household come down, they join Joseph and his new family down in Egypt. And of course, eventually Jacob dies and eventually Joseph dies, all of Joseph's brothers die. Scripture really doesn't say anything about those generations that follow, but when we pick up this morning, we're about 430 years after Joseph's story. Now, to put this in some kind of historic perspective, this, these are ballpark. These are big numbers, right? Just one of the things when we're done with this series, we'll have a big overview of Scripture as well as specifics about people who exemplify faithfulness or don't. Abraham's around 2100 B.C. If you're plotting on a timeline, and Joseph was around 1900 B.C., your study sheet puts 1446 B.C. as approximate date of the Exodus, whether you said 1440 or 1400. That, that's sort of where we're landing this morning. And as we do, let me mention a couple things about this, because depending on whose study Bible you use, they may disagree with this date. So this is the deal. Uh, there's great debate over when the Exodus occurred. And what, there's what's called the early date and there's what's called the late date. And the early date is about 1446 B.C. The late date's about 1260 B.C. So to get the early date, if you say, how do you fix this stuff? Well, what's the argument? The big ones, and there's many, many arguments on both sides. 1 Kings 6.1 says, In the 480th year after Israel came out of Egypt, it's the fourth year of the reign of Solomon, and it's when he begins building the temple. Now, we think, for a number of reasons, that 966 is that date. Historians generally agree that's the date the temple building began. So if you add 480 years to that, you get 1446 B.C. So that's why. Now, if that's the case, uh, Tutmosis III is likely the pharaoh of the Exodus. You know, he's never named by name. So it's just the Pharaoh, the king. Those who argue for the date 1260 or thereabouts B.C., uh, Ramses II would be the Pharaoh of that Exodus or Ramses II's son. And they basically argue this. 
480 years in 1 Kings 6 is not meant to be a literal number, but a symbolic number that represents, I think it's, is it 40 generations of 40? Something like that. They also point out that the city of Ramses is mentioned in Exodus. And so they say that city was built by Ramses II. He reigned in the 1200s. We know that. So therefore, the date isn't in the 1400s. It's in the 1200s. Guys, I've, I've looked at archaeology for a long, long time. I've gotten archaeological journals for decades. This is my deal. Uh, I'm an early guy. And, and what you'll find if you study it is this. Almost always, if you argue for a late date, the archaeologists, most of whom are not Christians, will tell you that none of the Exodus account is historic or literal. And that there is no conquest of the land of promise. That Jericho was a pile of rubble when Israel got there. And generally you'll find that the guys who argue for an early date say that the stories are historically true. They really happen just the way the Bible says they did. So I've hung my hat on 1446, not 1260. You can do all kinds of reading. There's tons and tons of literature on this. That's where I'm hanging my hat. So in the 400 years or so that's occurred since Joseph, the conditions for Jacob's descendants have changed dramatically. Remember, it's about 70 souls who go down, and there's a great multitude these 400 years later. And so the conditions and the number have changed dramatically. And this is where we pick up in Exodus 1. I'm going to start at verses 8, and we're just going to quickly run through the story, some elements, so that we can get to Pharaoh himself, because he's the lesson. Uh, there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So Pharaoh says two things. These guys are a liability if we're invaded, but also if they just leave, we're without the benefit of their labor. So in the succeeding verses, we find this. Pharaoh sets taskmasters over the Jews. He enslaves them. He gives them heavy burdens. He treats them ruthlessly. They're worked as slaves. These are all descriptions from Exodus. Their lives are bitter. Their service is hard. They're making bricks and mortar to build Pharaoh's cities and monuments. They're working in Pharaoh's fields. And it doesn't matter how hard they're treated, how harshly. The text says that they just keep reproducing and increasing. It doesn't get any better. And so that's when Pharaoh says to the midwives, you remember the story, hey, when you go and attend those Jewish gals having babies, if it's a boy, kill it. This, sound, this is a pro-abortion policy back in the day of Pharaoh. If it's a boy, you kill those. Well, the Jewish people cry out to God. This is in Exodus 2, 23 and 24. And God recruits a reluctant leader named Moses. He tells Moses, and we'll look at Moses next time, so we're not going to get into any specifics about him today. He tells Moses, you go back to the land of Egypt where you came from. You're going to confront Pharaoh with God's demands to let my people go, go from Egypt, go back to the land of promise. And this is based on a promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, 16. He said, you're not going to get it now. Your descendants aren't going to get it now. Four generations later, they're going to get it. Exodus 3, listen to this. And this is a great passage for numbers of reasons, but listen to the wording. Exodus 3, 7 through 10. The Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. 
I've heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, did you catch some key phrases? This is the gospel in this text. Uh, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and I have come down. That sounds like the incarnation to me. God looks down on the earth. He sees our suffering, our affliction under sin, our enslavement. And he says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to bring deliverance. And by the way, you know, even as believers today, you and I find we suffer in one way or another, right? Our own sin, the sins of others, life is hard, physical ailments, you name it. I love I love this text because when you cry out to God, it, he's listening, he sees, he understands, he's there with us. I love this for a number of reasons, but that's God's task to Moses. You're going to go down and you're going to lead them out. Now, the Pharaoh that Moses ran from has died, the text says. So when we pick up the Exodus account, it's not the Pharaoh who ordered the death of the boys. This is another Pharaoh. Again, if the early date's correct, this would be Tutmosis III. So when we look at what does faithlessness for this Pharaoh look like, and I don't want to jump ahead. I want to lay some foundation before we do. The first thing that we're pointing out is simply this. Pharaoh is an idolater. Now, you probably say, duh, because everybody's an idolater in the Old Testament outside that small cadre, right, of God's special people. Or, guys, this is true today too, though, isn't it? Isn't it? So, so think about this. Pharaoh personally oversees a religion that has over 2,000 gods in Egypt. Pharaoh is faithless to God, period. He's faithless to the God who created him and to the one who set him on the throne. And remember this, that when Noah and his children and their wives get off the ark, everyone has the same knowledge of God. Everyone knows the same stories. Everyone has the same ancestry. But what you see happening in history over time is as they disperse and as one generation passes down to another, those stories that they all held in common get corrupted. And so you'll see variations on the theme throughout pagan cultures, but they're digressions from the truth. And it's because this is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And this is what Pharaoh did. And this is true of all idolatry. He did not honor God or give God thanks. He became futile in his thinking. He turned to a foolish and darkened heart, and he exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And as you look at the images of some of the gods of Egypt, it's not just the sun called Ra or Amun sometimes, but it's also these part human, part male, or part female part animals, sometimes just animals. But this is exactly what Romans 1 lays out to tell us that all humanity outside God's covenant people had capitulated by turning, by hardening themselves against the revelation of God that they already had to worship something less than God. And God, this is always what idolatry does. We diminish God's glory. We make him more like ourselves. It's always a diminishing of God's glory. It's always an element of faithlessness. And that's where we start with Pharaoh. All forms of idolatry are faithlessness towards God. 
And guys, this doesn't just apply to people in other parts of the world or way back in the day, ignorant people, because God tells us today in 1 Corinthians 10 to flee idolatry. He told the church, he tells Christians to run away from idolatry. This isn't just a sin that it can affect others. This is a sin that affects us as well. So Pharaoh is faithless to God in his idolatry, but he's also faithless in this sense. You know, when Jesus is asked in the New Testament, what are the two great commandments? Jews are thinking of the law that God gives Moses at Sinai, no doubt. What are the two great commandments? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God first and foremost, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Now, guys, that was always true before the law was given. It was true under the law, and it's still true today. What do you think happens to people who fail to love God vertically first? They fail to love neighbors horizontally second. And so you not only see Pharaoh's faithlessness towards God, but you see it faithlessness towards his neighbor. He doesn't love his neighbor. He enslaves the people around him. His harsh treatment of the Jews was faithlessness towards their creator. And this is always what happens. If you want to oppress or abuse a people or a person, you first dehumanize them. You raise yourself up and you push them down. This is Pro-Life Sunday, and the first group I'm thinking about are the unborn babies. So all we say is either they're not human, and because of the ability we have with ultrasounds to see little children in the wombs, their faces, you, you really can't get away with that anymore. We now say, though, they're not as important as someone else. The unborn are not as important as the born and the living. We dehumanize them. We make them less important than we are for one reason or another. And this is what you'll always see through history, this is what Pharaoh did to the people who weren't Egyptians. They're not like us. We're better than them. We'll treat them any way we like. This is true of the Jews in Egypt. It's true of the Jews again, isn't it, in Europe? Not very long ago, it was also true of the gypsies and the infirm, the crippled, the mentally unstable in Germany. We dehumanize them, and then we say we can do anything with them we want. Faithlessness towards our brothers and sisters horizontally always follows faithlessness towards God vertically. So you see that in order in Pharaoh's life. You also see this specifically. Pharaoh is specifically threatening God's children. In fact, and this is a paradigm you see worked out in the Exodus account, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And it's God and his son against Egypt and Egypt's son. So this is in Exodus 4, 22 through 23. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is God speaking to Moses. Say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And remember, in these cultures, the firstborn son was, if you will, the symbol of the power of the, of the father. It's the extension of the power of the Father. And so here's Pharaoh in Egypt, and he has, God says, God's son. He's holding God's son hostage, and God says, I won't stand for this. This is my son. If you don't release my firstborn son, my covenant people, I will take your son instead. One of us is going to lose in this. And Pharaoh is attacking the covenant people of God, the apple of God's eye. 
He's faithless towards God and being faithless specifically to God's people. You'll see this, and these are on your study sheet. Hosea 11.1, 1, though, talks about the Exodus. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But you'll see that same text quoted by Matthew to say what was true of Israel in the Exodus is true of Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of God saying, this is my son, release him. And of course, you see Jesus and his family coming back to the land of promise out of Egypt, just like the Exodus. Now, last, and maybe the place that we tend to think of faithlessness towards Pharaoh is this. He's faithless in specifically rejecting the commands of God from Moses. And uh, listen to this language. This is Exodus 5. So Moses and Aaron went and they say to Pharaoh, and we're just hop, skipping, and jumping because we're just trying to get to the lesson. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, now listen to this. This is a little mortal man on earth, and this is his response to the eternal I am. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. I don't know God. I, that God you're talking about, I don't know him. Guys, this is exactly the language of atheism today and agnostics. So we talked about this in Sunday school. If I don't want to obey what God said, I, I say, I'm not sure he's really God. I'm not sure that's really the Bible. I'm not really sure that's true. Fair just says, I don't know who you're talking about. This eternal I am, this God that you say is always, always was, is, and always will be, I don't know who you're talking about. And I certainly won't obey him. <laughs> this is faithlessness to believe in the God who is and who demonstrates himself to be the only and eternal God. It's the language of atheism today. It's the language of agnostics, as if to say... I don't know enough about this God or his claims to say he's God. Now, if we're interacting with others and we're presenting the gospel, we want to be clear that Christ is the thing, right? And that the, remember, the gospel is in fact a command to the world to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Acts 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Romans 1 and Romans 16, Romans begins and ends with the command, the gospel as a command. You're obeying the command of the gospel. So this is a guy saying, I don't know that that's God. And I'm certainly not going to obey that guy you say is God. Now listen to what he says. And 10 times God says, God records, Pharaoh hardens his heart. So in those miracles, what you'll see is Pharaoh keeps saying, it, the text says of Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. There's two Hebrew words used here. Uh, one means uh, heavy. In fact, a variation of that word is used for glory elsewhere. Heavy. So <clears throat> in my mind, I've got a huge granite boulder and it's sunk in the earth. It's heavy and it's immovable. It's got such inertia, it's not going to move anywhere. So Pharaoh makes his heart like a stone set in the earth. It's not moving, period. The other Hebrew word means strong. So, you know, if I'm on one side of a door and you're on the other and I try and get in and you feel me and you push and, you know, initially I just go like this to test the door and you push back. It's just a little push. But if I push harder and you push harder back and I push harder yet and you put all your force, that's what Pharaoh's doing. He's making his heart strong. Every opportunity to obey God, he says no, and it gets harder and harder to do so. 
and he strengthens himself in his faithlessness, in his refusal to obey. Exodus 7.13 says, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He wouldn't listen to them. 7.14, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. 22, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. I didn't list all these, but if you do a search and you just put hard with the asterisk, all these will come up in your Bible search. So his response to God is faithlessness, and it's this adamant no every time God tells him to do something. His creator and the eternal God says no. You know what happens to people that say no to God long enough? God says no back. In Exodus 3.19, when God approaches Moses initially, he says this, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God knows the beginning from the end. He's eternal. He's not locked in time. He doesn't guess about the future. So he tells Moses, you're going to go down, you're going to tell him to do these things. He's not going to. And I will have to compel him. And so then he says in Exodus 4.21, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Ten times the text says Pharaoh hardens his heart. Ten times the text says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is called judicial hardening. So I say to God, I won't, I won't, I won't. And then God says to me eventually, okay, well, you can't, you can't, you can't. There's Proverbs 29.1 speaks exactly to this. A person who's often reproved but stiffens his neck will be suddenly broken and that without remedy. That we've got to be careful. And this is, uh, Pharaoh's an unbeliever. We're not parsing how this applies to believers versus perhaps unbelievers today, much less through history. But there's this, there's this uh, truth that the more fully we give ourselves to something, the more likely it is that it's going to destroy us. And that's what happens here with Pharaoh. So he tells God, I won't. And God eventually says to him, okay, I'm confirming your decision. This is who and what you've chosen to be. And this is who and what you will be. This is what I'm making you. God didn't start it. God simply finished it. Now, if this sounds unjust, and I know for some people, the first thing it sounds is God's unfair because now Pharaoh can't turn around. And I'd say two things to this. So if that's the wheels going on. Guys, the first thing is this. And, and I think um, Christians, not just those who are unchristians today, we absolutely minimize God's God and we're not. He's God and we're not. So what you'll find in Jeremiah and in Romans 9, the same thing, is God says he's a potter with a lump of clay. And guess what you and I are? We're lumps of clay. And he says he can do with, with us whatever he wants. Because he's God. And because we're not. He's God. We're not. We're clay in his hands. He can form us any way he wants. In fact, that's the creation account, is it not? How'd God form Adam? He pulled the dirt, the clay, the red stuff of the earth together like a potter puts mud together, and he breathed in the breath of life because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. The best thing that can happen in the world for God or for us is that God is glorified, and everything he does is for his glory. He demonstrates the perfections of his own excellencies. He's God and we're not. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is this. God's never less than just. 
He's never less than just. God never does an injustice. When he stamps, you can't on Pharaoh, it's just. Pharaoh has said, I'm going to be this kind of a person, I'm making this kind of decision, and God says, fine, you've got it. This is your choice, this is what I give you. He's never less than just. In fact, we know as believers today, do we not? He's merciful. His love endures past generations. We exist by his grace. So we don't want to mistake this judicial hardening on Pharaoh for anything less than justice or God's ultimate mercy and grace. It's, it's never less than his perfection. He's God, we're not, and he's never less than just. So Exodus 7.3 says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Exodus 10.1, go into Pharaoh, I've hardened his heart ten times. Again, I'll let you do your own search. Those aren't all on your study sheet. Now let me ask you a question. Why do we have this? Why is Pharaoh here and why is Egypt here and what in the world is going on? What's God's ultimate end game or plan for what's going on here? Now the text tells us God's conquest over Egypt and Egypt's king was a demonstration to the world that Yahweh, whose name means I'm the eternal one, I've always been, I will always be, was the true and living God as opposed to all the idols and false gods worshipped in Egypt then and every place else in all times, all places. God says, I'm God and nothing and no one else is. So this is the thing. In that day, Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth. Therefore, the gods of Egypt are assumed to be the most powerful gods on earth, right? Everybody believes in their different regional gods. So Egypt's gods must be the most powerful. So what does God do? He picks the most powerful nation with the most powerful king whose gods are understood to be the most powerful gods, and he knocks them all down to show I'm God and they're not. There's no God besides me. There's no hope besides me. I'm God and they're not. This was a demonstration of God's power and it's exactly what God says he's doing in Exodus 9, 10 and 11. He says this in Exodus 9, 13. The Lord said to Moses, say to Pharaoh, at this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. The initial plagues, Pharaoh's not feeling it. He's safe from them. He's got his water. He's not affl affl afflicted personally by those initial plagues. And God says, you've sort of been sitting on the sidelines so far. But he says, so that you may know, Pharaoh, so that you may know there's none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have knocked you down already. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is quoted in Romans 9. God says, I've raised you up. I know you're a stubborn person. I knew you'd resist my will. So I've raised you up so that through you, the most powerful man on earth, I may demonstrate my power. I'm going to get victory over you and Egypt and the Egyptian gods, and my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. I love this. And of course, what do you read throughout the Old Testament and the Psalms and the prophets? The defeat of Pharaoh and the Exodus, which we'll look at next time, is brought up time after time after time after time. This is the God who defeated the most powerful forces on earth. 
That's the God who overcame Pharaoh. You see this in Exodus 10.1. God's hardened his heart that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Do the Jews end up doing that? Guys, no, this isn't the Exodus account today, but what happens every, or every excuse me, every uh, Passover? It's a recounting of God's destruction of the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army and God's deliverance of his people every Passover. And by the way, Rick will be leading us later in the Lord's Supper. Every time we proclaim the Lord's Supper, we are declaring God in Christ destroying the powers of sin, Satan, and death, that there's no power greater. This is an early example of God coming down to say, I'm God, I deliver, I'm salvation, there's salvation in no other. 11.9, the Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh won't listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied. Keeps going on. I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh and over his host, his chariots. Pharaoh and his Egypt and the gods are means by which God demonstrates his own power and his own glory. That's what this is about at the end of the day. Guys, on the larger stage and the scheme of things, you've got this. That was true. That really his, uh, occurred in time and space. It's history. We believe that. But it's also meant to be an example. Egypt represents the world, the world system, the cosmos. That's the Greek term John uses in the New Testament. And the world or the cosmos is that world power presence that's in sin, that's subjugated by Satan, that's organized, if you will, against Christ and against the Lord. And of course, ultimately, this, this comes to bear in a, in a full-fruited rebellion against God that the scriptures still speak about before Christ returns. But the Egypt represents the world. It's the place of slavery. It's the place of sin and moral and spiritual darkness. Pharaoh represents the God of this world, Satan. He's the power on earth, absolutely faithless against God. What His fist is in heaven against God. He's the one that enslaves people, that makes life hard and bitter. He's opposed in fact, he persecutes God's people and God's plan. And God says at the end of the day, just like he did with Pharaoh in Egypt, he does with Satan and the world and the powers of this world. He uses them as a demonstration that he's God and they're not. And that's to him we give an account. You bring this up in Colossians 2. Remember that the gods of Egypt were as much in the sights of God as Pharaoh and the country, because all people at that time were worshiping their own regional God. Well, today for you and I, whether those gods are real statue, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that idols are nothing. A statue is nothing, but behind statues are demons. There are demonic powers that cultivate people's belief in idols. And Jesus is said in his death and resurrection, not only to have atoned for your sins and mine, but that he conquered the gods of this world. And they're called things like principalities and powers. Listen to this from Colossians 2. God disarmed the rulers and authorities, demonic, worldly gods or powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in Christ, in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 goes this way. He prays that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every other name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The Exodus, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's faithlessness, and the Exodus account is a foretelling of God coming down in the person of Christ to overcome the gods of this world, to overcome sin, Satan, and death, and show us he is God and there is no other. And there's no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. Christ is it. So the faithlessness of Pharaoh at the end of the day is used by God as a foil or a means of displaying his own power and his own glory. Ultimately, that comes home to us in Christ. And I hope this is where we live. At the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus led those held in captive. In fact, it says he led captivity captive. He took the slaves and he led them out of slavery. That's Ephesians 4, quoting Psalm 68. At the cross, Satan thought he had slain God's son, right? It's Pharaoh against God's son Israel and defeated his great enemy when in fact Jesus' death and the resurrection that followed guaranteed that Christ would lead those in darkness out into the light of life. So guys, for you and I today, and this can be true of any of us for whom this is not yet true. When a person turns in faith to Christ, when they obey God by obeying the gospel, believing and trusting themselves and their sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, they have their own personal exodus. They leave the kingdom of darkness. They're set free from slavery to sin and Satan. They enter a place of promise and life, not without its struggles, by the way. There's no enemy too great. There's no sin so strong that it can overcome Jesus' victory, just as there was no power on earth that could overcome God, the eternal I am, when he said, I'm taking my people out of this place of slavery, sin, and death. That's our story as believers. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son through faith in Christ. Well, if you would stand with me and read from Psalm 135, this is looking back on something similar to this occurrence in Exodus. You guys got it? Yep. Read me, with me if you would. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. Amen.